0: And welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Now, this week's episode, and next week's episode, um, is a little different to usual. There'll still be some recording chat, and there'll still be some sort of 60s songwriting chat. However, it's a little bit more focused on what the 60s represent in terms of recording and sounds and what that means in terms of like an actual physical release and or a a music release so how would you go about recreating a 60s mentality towards recording nowadays Um, and the way that it's uh, come to my attention is a, a chap called Andy Morehouse has got in touch because he has created a character essentially called Norman Havelock who he suggests, is a 60s songwriter um, who sort of just uh, fell out of favour, if you like, and um, then sort of fizzled out, which is a all-too-common theme for a lot of the songwriters that existed in the 60s. Um, so he's written an album based on what he imagines this imaginary character might have gone on to write had he continued writing. Now, at first, it was a bit of a... You'll hear me say this in the interview too. Uh, you have to kind of stand back and go, "Hmm, r- really? I, w- w- I okay." <laughs> um, and then when you look into it, it's it's actually really, really clever. And he's written a, he's created a whole persona for this this chap, and he's managed to recreate the '60s session musician style using. I mean the creme de la creme of session musicians in this country, um, namely a drummer called Ralph Salmons, who um, you know I've studied with, and is one of the drummers that I um, think you know. I just I've looked up to him since I was uh, you know since I was a teenager, and he is a fantastic drummer. Um, and as soon as I saw <laughs> as soon as I saw his name on the credits, thought I mean this is definitely going to be good. Um, so. Essentially, Andy has, has created this vibe uh, in the modern day with with modern production, but it's got that 60s sound and we talk about what defines that sound, how he approached it, um, how he went about writing the songs, where he recorded it, how that it was recorded. Um, so essentially, what I'm suggesting is this is a little different to normal, but it's something that I think... Uh, gets to the heart of what we discuss a lot on this podcast so stick with it and hopefully go and check out the album which will be out by the time uh, this episode is airing um, and listen to the album either before or after you listen to the podcast um and hopefully you some of hopefully these these ideas that we discuss will influence your songwriting or production and uh, at least get you thinking as it did with me about what the 60s mentality really is and how that is relevant for us in the in the modern day. So anyway, here we go. Uh, Andy Morehouse, uh, aka Friends of Norman Havelock. I just wondered if you could start if we could start with a bit of background about you, just so so if people listening can have a bit of a perspective about what your what your sort of history is leading up to the point where you decided to embark on this project.
1: Yeah, of course. Um thanks, Jen. Thanks for um thanks for having me on your podcast. Um I suppose my background goes back quite a long way with music. Um, in the late 80s I was in a, a group called Playing and the Magnificent. And um worked. Dale Davis was the bass player in that group. Dale went on to much greater things than me. Um, apart from many other things, he was um, bass player for Amy Winehouse. Uh, he's done loads and loads of stuff with all sorts of people apart from that, but if you look at any of the iconic film of Amy Winehouse, Dale is the probably the second best-known player for playing a, a violin bass, Hoffner bass. <laughs> And uh, he's in it. So um, I did some work with um, Count Indigo in the nineties in terms of the easy listening boom, and some work that led to some music in advertising. Um, but uh, really, my career took a turn of um, moving into music education. And when I was, I was running a, a group of. Um, contemporary music schools called Tech Music Schools, and some people may have heard of in the early 2000s. Um, Drum Tech, Vocal Tech, Guitar X was a guitar and bass school that we set up. And when I was there, I met uh, a lot of fantastic musicians, great people. And as my career developed in terms of education, uh, in some senses, my contact with music uh, diminished, if you like, but there became a Became a moment um, in 2015 where I thought, well, actually, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to test the water and just, I've got some material, um, see what I can do. And one of those songs, "Impossible Dream," turned out pretty well. And Andrew McKinney, the the bass player uh, who currently plays with Jarvis Cocker, um, he said to me, "Why don't you just throw away your remark? Why don't you do an album?" And of course, you know, life being what it is, it didn't happen. And then I got a, an opportunity in 2018 where I had a, a three-month period where uh, I had some time, and I thought, you know what, Andrew, I'm gonna, I'm going to, I'm gonna take you up on that offer, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna write an album. And um, here we are, three, three and a bit years later. Um, it's taken some time for all sorts of reasons, many of which will be familiar to people, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I got a, a vision, an idea in my head of what I wanted to do. And it's been uh, a real labour of love, really, to bring it to fruition. And so from that initial sort of writing period of three or four months over the summer of 2018, um, taking some songs that uh, had actually been recorded a lot earlier, in my, or or written a lot earlier in my career. And then added, you know, then written a lot of new fresh material as well. But I wanted to make it as a coherent whole, if you like. So it was very much about getting an idea for a record and trying to build the material around that. So because I've got this, this long running not just love of music but a, a link with a lot of really talented super talented musicians and things that i've known as as friends and colleagues over the years I was very fortunate in that I could draw upon um their goodwill and good nature and uh they they um you know gave a lot to help create the record
0: What is it about sort of sixties specifically um not just asking that question in, because of, you know, this is a, a 60s podcast, but the, the album is very focused on sort of 60s into early 70s. What is it about that era that I'm, I'm kind of thinking before bef- before the album came together, w- why did you go down that avenue of, of any of the ones you could have picked?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, you know, I think growing up, um, music of the 60s was the most powerful um formative experience for me. I love the films of the sixties, I love the clothes of the sixties, I love the the um all sorts of things about the cultural and socioeconomic changes of the sixties, but the music has always spoken to me deeply, I think. And yes, the 70s is is also um something that you know, is formative for me as well. But I think the the sixties and the record really is kind of about that because, in a sense, people you know talk about nostalgia, and um, often in quite pejorative terms, nostalgia is is seen as a uh, a sort of rose-tinted spectacles, look at the past, claiming that, uh, or apparently claiming that life was better back in the 50s or the 60s, whenever you might say. And it's, it's linked to a time in the common understanding of what nostalgia is. And I think nostalgia, if you, if you look at it um, from the original Greek uh, word, it actually means ache for home. And ache for home is not about time so much, it's about place. But it's also about i think once you get back to that idea of home you obviously get back to the idea of yourself as a young person and connecting to the formative experiences and issues and, and understanding that you have of yourself so the record sort of speaks to that sort of thing in the 60s you know i was born in 1964 um the the period I I was there. I I can remember it. So I wasn't on drugs. So that's um, (laughs) the the exception to the the common uh, phrase that's used. But um, it, you know, became such a formative thing, the music that even though when I was growing up and first playing music in the 80s, it was 60s music that, that totally, you know, enveloped me really and engulfed me. And this record is a kind of love letter to those songs and the, that time and that period and and all all about
0: it so to dive sort of right into the um the sort of idea of of every, everything you've come up with about it some something we when we spoke on the phone the other day before 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 right now <laughs> mm. you talked about um the way that a film has a narrative and an arc to it and often, music albums don't have that and it's uh, it seems i just wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about the way that you um the way that you view what you've created and and why you went about sort of creating something so in-depth
1: well i think it's it's this you know i formed the friends of norman havelock to celebrate the life and work of norman havelock the only thing is norman havelock didn't Exist. He's a fictional <laughs> character. So then you get, okay, so what sort of man was he? What did he know? Who did he associate with? What sort of um, person was he? And that throws up all sorts of questions. But I think one of the one of the things is in in, in to, to your point about film and things, film is often very genre-based. So if a if a film director says i would like to write a western and i'm going to set it in 1850 in phoenix arizona nobody bats an eyelid if then the next movie set in space in 2060. Uh, you've got the freedom to move through genres different genres and to bring your themes and your ideas and your concepts to that genre and that doesn't particularly happen very much in music i don't think so the 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 record is kind of a character study of Norman. Who is he? What sort of person is he? Uh, it's also a period piece in that it obviously clearly reflects back to a, a, a time from 1960 to 1970. And then it's also a study in in styles and in genre because if you if you um, I remember in you know a long time ago in film studies at, uh, at college original study of what are called auteurs so great cinematic directors were looking at their their themes and their ideas in terms of them as as an autobiographical record there as an artist and then somebody pointed out well actually some of these things are just conventions of the genre and so the genre was in in forming a lot of the 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 meaning and i think that that becomes a powerful thing for me and that if you write a song you say i want to write a song that speaks that is set in 1962, okay, what kind of sounds would we be using, what kind of production techniques? what sort of performance might it be? And that will inform the kind of song it is. So even if you you could sing, you know, words that would never have um, necessarily been used in 1962, but the conventions of the genre give it, anchor it somehow and and allow that, that juxtaposition could be interesting. So, you know, a very influential um, uh, influence on this project was the Amy Winehouse album Back to Black, because, OK, that's 14, 15 years ago now, but it was, it for me, it was a really coherent, sonically really coherent record in that it sits very clearly within a time period, although it was clearly had modern sensibilities and and production techniques on it but it was one of the influencing things for me because i thought yes you can you can pinpoint a time and you can work with genre different genres in my case and, and sort of different stylistically but that creates a sort of interesting context for for the the feelings and emotions and thinking that you want to put across in the songs
0: in terms of uh, sort of i guess um... I guess I'm thinking of melodies and um, and chord sequences and things. So, do you think? So, if you think of yourself as the act, uh, the writer director of of this album, and if we're kind of going with the film metaphor, then you have a director who can bring their style to to different films that are set in. You know, there might be different genres of films and or set, have different settings, um, but there has to be. It doesn't have to be, but there's likely to be a common thread between the way that that director works. So what is it, do you, do you think um, that there is a common thread in music that allows that to happen? Could you have had these songs in a in a different genre or is there something that um, sort of ties them to uh, trying to sort of, so, something that sort of links them together as, as the, a, a narrative that means that you could have, you could have put them in somewhere else, if that makes sense. So aside from it being sixties and aside from it being um, sort of recorded in a particular way or performed in a particular way, in terms of like a story and an, and an arc, what do you think it is about uh, about this collection of songs or this way of approaching a record that... Um, when you boil it down is there is still there does that kind of question make sense it's a bit of a curious yeah, so one
1: <laughs> I, I think with i think i know what you mean i'll try and get to it. i think you know with songs, songs are a very um, often a very immediate thing and people can approach them in different ways so this is in a sense this is my approach to this material but once you put it out there the audience can the audience completes the work of art in a sense. And without the audience, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So this is why it's quite interesting for me, because writing through a a fictional construct sort of tends to remove the the notion that everything an artist does is autobiographical, which, which tends to be a common theme that critics and all sorts take on board. And if you come up with fictional things, you put some distance between that but i think it's really that could the songs exist in a different context yes i think they could they could probably be rearranged in different ways recorded in different ways and they would they would you know rather like i suppose um people have said star wars is a western in space and and <laughs> precisely
0: that's and and it's exactly.
1: and it, and it, and it, is, it is that that's precisely what it is it's a roy Rogers type uh, um you, you know uh saturday morning western set in in the future in space and i think in a sense and you can do that with songs so if you choose to reposition them in in terms of genre you can change how they feel and how that how they sit you can you can go pretty much anywhere
0: with so what them. do you think makes i kind of getting quite deep into this now, but I'm really, I'm really curious about it. And the, the reason I'll, I'll explain the reason I am is because I, I have this project that we spoke about, which is the, the one I'm doing with Ron Ryan, which mm. actually is re- like a real similar version of what, what this is, but Ron, yeah. Existed. Um, yeah. And he sent well, me, well, <laughs> well, sure. yeah, well, he sent me th- some demos of songs and the production on them was, uh, very eighties and nineties MIDI sounds. And, I, when I heard them, I had to look past that mm. those sounds and see that there was a song that I could make, um, that spoke to me, uh, you know, as a, I guess a producer on the project, and it spoke yeah. to me, and I, I I could imagine how I would make that that sound, and it took me, for a couple of the songs particularly, it took a little bit of convincing on the band side of things for me to go, no, look, please just go with me on this, and I think it will come out good, so there, there's a, an underlying essence of that song there and, and I guess that that exists in these songs too so I wonder what you what what do you think that that underlying essence is what makes the song work in in the way so you know what makes the story of a great film work what makes what makes the song uh, you know it doesn't matter what era you plunk them in what makes that song work for you?
1: um i think there are lots of potential things um often it's themes that are present in a song or or, or whatever so there may be themes that have relevance so if uh, i don't know, take a song like the times they are changing for instance so uh, written um what in 1963 or so i think uh maybe slightly wrong on that but um uh, you know within the first half of the 60s yeah. Uh, That song has been covered many, many times, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of times. It might be played on a a demonstration. So there might be kids hearing that and relating to that song who are a couple of generations down the line from the original teenagers who might have dug that song in in 1963. Uh, So there's something thematically about that that might be relevant, timeless, universal, that people might buy into. So songs, for instance, about love, in inverted commas, there's a universal theme, et cetera. If it touches people, it treat, pushes the right buttons, et cetera, that might do it. But I think there's something also about the sound. And I'm often struck by, you know, been reading quite a reading Paul McCartney's lyrics book yeah. um, that I was kindly given for Christmas. <laughs> and he was talking about how they recorded some um, some of their songs in German, and French in the early days, you know, to, to go to other markets and yeah. things. But it struck me that, you know, when the songs were, they were played in Russia quite a lot and things like that and were a big part of You know, what Russian teenagers felt. Most of them would not have understood English. So there's something about, and many countries all over the world, would have heard those songs and been touched and moved by those songs without necessarily understanding the primal language that they're being communicated in, i.e. English. So the other language, which is music and the sound, is communicating very, very powerfully. So I think that's where the the ability, and and those songs are incredibly powerful. 50 plus, 60 years on, they still exert extremely powerful feelings. Um, Why is that? There's something around the sound. And when you get into the sound, okay, what do you mean about the sound? Well, it might be how it's recorded. It might be how it was written. It might be how it was performed. Um, a combination of things. It might be the microphones they used. It might be the amplifiers. It might be the mixing desk, etc. The technical things. It's all these things in in truth, isn't it? It's all these things that that come together. And and um, I think if you look at you know modern, we live in an age of what you might call perfect music at the moment, whereby everything is auto tuned and quantized to. Precision that no human on earth could ever replicate. That's that's that, you know that's what digital modern music means, and that that's okay. That can exist. I don't, I don't particularly have a problem with that. But I think um, if you look at okay things, why do things sound different that were recorded in 1965? There are technological differences, but there are performance differences. There are writing differences, there are arranging differences, there are all sorts of things that mean that the overall sound is different. And I think when you you have a, a record that sounds good 50, 60 years later, and still sounds great, when you put it on the turntable, you hear it in the car or it's on your phone or whatever, then it's it's achieved a kind of timelessness. So it no longer sounds old fashioned or dated, it actually sounds classic. and um, you know it doesn't have any pejorative um, negative connotations whereas something recorded 10 years ago it was very fashionable 10 years ago might sound really upsetting to modern ears because it's (laughs) no longer it's no longer um, cutting edge sound and so on and and so there's a i I think what i'm getting to is there much has been gained you know society moves on things get you know, progress is made, things things are gained, but also things are lost as well. And I think what I was trying to do here was to look look back at some of those things that are lost, and particularly around performance and particularly around capturing a performance and, a, and an attitude and that sort of thing and seeing could we, could we make that something that
0: hopefully has a kind of timeless appeal. I, I think you've achieved it, and that's one of the reasons I was really quite looking forward to this conversation is that, um the way that you've approached it is, you know, I've done episodes on um, Bobby Gray, the, the drummer, and then uh, spoke to Clem Catini, and then, uh, you know, all these guys who were involved in um, the sort of studio bands at Motown or the Funk Brothers and all these kind of guys, in a sense, you've pulled together the modern equivalent of those people, which might not be um, necessarily household names but if those, for those in the know I mean Ralph Salmond has been my hero since I was about 16. um yeah. you know, I, I remember seeing and he's not he wasn't um you know I don't know if you'll listen to this but he wasn't playing on particularly cool records I, I mean I was buying Robbie Williams records because Ralph yeah. was on was playing yeah. on yeah. them and uh, he was just there was something about his his capability and then then the same goes for a, a lot of the other players that you've got on the record so if you could talk about the way that you pulled them together in the room and just the, that level of musicianship that, you know, you've kind of recreated this, the that 60s mentality of, of enormously talented musicians that you can absolutely rely upon to bring their A game, um, put them in a room, do your thing, and you get something special at the other end. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think well, I'm, well. Thank you, first of all. Thank you for recognizing that, and that, uh, that you you can hear that and you can feel it when you when you listen to the record. Yeah, so you're right. Ralph Salmond is is one of the foremost drummers that this country has ever produced. And I think if anyone has got a week to spare to look at his CV, which is huge, you will see he's played with the Waterboys, Van Morrison, McCartney, Aretha Franklin, Bjork. The list is Tom Jones, Robbie. The list is endless. Uh, 150 feature films Hans zimmer you name it he did he did the drums for the opening ceremony of the 2012 olympics you know i mean he just goes on and on and on and and ralph i think epitomizes the idea of the drumming for me is time feel and sound and if you have those three things you you can you can set the tone for the whole record and it's if you haven't got those things it's not that it's a waste of time but you're just not going to be able to maximize the songs if you don't have great drums so so for me drums is the number one thing and I'm talking to a drummer so I know I know you'll agree (laughs) with me on this but um, it's the number one thing that sets the tone for the record so very very lucky that um, Ralph agreed to do it uh, Dale Davis, obviously uh, a phenomenal bass player. Amy Winehouse, Paul Young, Emily Sunday. You know, you can go through a long list of people in in his life. And someone I've been a you know a dear friend for over thirty years. His brother Wendon, um, played with D. Ream and uh, he's a great percussionist, great vocalist. Um, John Wheatcroft, head of guitar at the British Institute of Modern Music. Great player, Vern Asprey, who's uh, known as a real top session guitarist, but a really amazing vocalist and i just love fell in love with what what he was doing and Vern did an incredible job then you've got steve turner who's keyboard player for electric light orchestra amongst other things played with beyonce kylie you go on on and on and on he's the string arranger he did the strings the easy access orchestra uh ralph lamb andrew ross did all the horns and woodwind and things and you've got you know, will wild um, one of the top two or three harmonica players in the country. You know, so you go on and on, and then there are backing vocalists and all sorts, and uh, Kevin Webster on keys. Um, A great, great group of people that agreed to to do it. So I'm hugely indebted to them. But really the brief was, okay, I'll give you the the brief, the sort of, uh, for each number, this is a little pen portrait of what the song is, what it's about, what's the vibe, what's the feeling, what's the era, what are we trying to communicate? The demos were quite detailed, so we knew the tempos, we knew the structure of the song, we knew the grooves, we knew the, the chord and harmonic progressions, we knew the vocals and melodies, etc., and some, some other colours in there. But then John Wheatcroft, he, he wrote the charts out, just wrote the charts, and in so they were given with the demos to the players on, on day one of recording in one eight-hour session we recorded 10 rhythm sections so that's about 45 45 minutes of tune so that's a little and they hadn't rehearsed them before so that's like two or three runs through of the tune and then a couple of
0: takes it's astounding then, when you when you say that you know it the just, I mean, for if people listen to this who aren't musicians who are just interested in listening to music, I mean, that's unbelievable I mean, to to achieve a feat like that. You 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 don't do that. <laughs> it's it's
1: yeah. Mad. I think it's uncommon, but I think it was more common. And anyone who's watched the Get Backs, you know, the uh, Peter Jackson uh, documentary in the, over the last month, will have seen the biggest band in the world write new songs in three weeks, basically, and rattle it off. Um, it can be done. Um, obviously, I, I'm not trying to compare the, the quality of the output, but I mean, in terms of the mechanics of it, about preparation, about wanting to, knowing what you're doing, knowing what the vision is, and then having people with the tech, not just the technical facility to be able to do it, but having the the stylistic understanding of what's required. What are the motifs? What are the what's the vocabulary? What's the right thing to do? Um, to suit the 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 songs as described, and when you get that, it's just magic. And that that after one day, I thought, well, now we have we have a record because that the foundations have been laid, and whatever happens now, we can we can go on and we can build from there. And it, and if the converse is true, if we would come up with say one or two finished rhythm sections in that day, I'd have just thought, well, it's over. I can't I can't make this work. You know, but it was it was so refreshing. And I remember Dale saying, you know, it's so good because you come to these so fresh. You haven't been rehearsing them for two weeks endlessly. And would they have been different if we'd rehearsed them for two weeks? Of course they would. Would they have been any better? Who knows? But to me, the the object was a, achieved and they sounded good. And that just meant that we had the foundation to then layer on the other stuff. So, you know, the strings were for five songs were recorded in a four-hour session in Prague. You know, it's preparation. Steve Turner fantastic. I did did three three three-hour sessions with Andrew Ross and Ralph Lamb, Easy Access Orchestra on the horns. Three three three-hour sessions, bingo, done. And then vocals were much the same, percussions and add-ons and all the rest of it. And the claps are hand claps and the finger snaps are finger snaps and the castanets are castanets. Nothing is programmed. It is all played. Nothing is triggered. And And I think that gives it a sound, and that's what I was really after.
0: There we have it, part one of my conversation with Andy Morehouse, a.k.a. Friends of Norman Havelock. Please do... Uh, Google Friends of Norman Havelock, uh, which you will see in the title of this podcast episode. Um, I'll also have links to it in the episode notes. But if you go on Google or the episode notes and click on the Bandcamp or have a look on Spotify or wherever you uh, listen to music, I would obviously advise you to um, to go somewhere like Bandcamp where you can contribute to it if you want to listen to it. Um, but yeah, go and check it out and listen to the album with ears fresh ears based on this conversation uh it's really really interesting um, and we dig a little bit more deeper into it uh next week uh so yes um that just leaves me to say thank you for listening if you'd like to get in touch with me uh which a lot of you have actually in the last few weeks with the uh, episode suggestions interview suggestions and um, that would be fantastic my email address is joe at all you need is drums.com and if you visit all you need is drums.com All of the stems and multi-tracks and things I do for Beatles uh, are all up there. Uh, So do go and check that out. And that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallet for the artwork, and to Rory Hancock for uploading and editing the podcast. And thank you to you for listening. Uh, And we'll be back next week. Uh, See you then. Goodbye!